An historic new era set to begin in Mexico on Saturday. What does Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador mean for Texas? That story and more today on the Texas Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KET Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. With support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown. It's been more than a year after Hurricane Harvey. Whatever happened to those long-promised fixes to the floodplain maps? We'll take a closer look. In the first Texas city to shift to 100% renewable energy, plans to redesign the neighborhoods of the future. And the big news this holiday season may not be buying the latest smartphone, but what we're buying with those smartphones. Our go-to digital guru, Omar Gayaga, has got your number. Don't touch that dial. It's Texas Standard Time. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard Time on this 29th day of November 2018. I'm David Brown. Great to have you with us on this Thursday. As we approach the weekend and the national news cycle turns its attention to the G20 summit, we are turning our attention to an event somewhat closer to home, one full of pomp and ceremony and great expectations, certainly among the nearly 130 million people of Mexico and one of great import for Texas, most certainly as well, given our history, our people, and the 1,954 miles of shared border. Mexico's our biggest trading partner, too. In 2017, we imported $89 billion worth of goods with exports of $97.3 billion. You do the math. That translates to nearly a million Texas jobs dependent on our relationship with Mexico. And on Saturday, that country inaugurates a new president who campaigned on a platform of Mexico first. Though unlike Mr. Trump's America First, those who know Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador say he's a leader more in the style of Brazil's Lula. So what does all this add up to for us? Joining us now to talk about the man known south of the border as AMLO, journalist Alfredo Corchado. He is an author most recently of the book Homelands. He's also Mexico border correspondent for the Dallas Morning News. Alfredo, welcome back to the Texas Standard. Dave, great to be back back with you. Uh, so, how are things at this on the eve of the inauguration, as it were? I mean, and I don't mean necessarily that as a pleasantry, but how is Mexico as we speak? Well, you know, I think it's safe to say that Mexico is caught between hope and despair. I've been here the last uh, few hours, and there's a real sense of a party mood. I mean, I think people are in the mood to celebrate. This is the first opposition leader who's not from the pre or the pond in more than 100 years. But there's also, a, you know, people are really downright skeptical. Uh, I think they're afraid of this long hangover that they felt that they saw because Mexicans have seen this movie before. I mean, when Vicente Fox came into power in 2000, he was the, he was the first leader of an opposition party in, in more than 70 years. He came riding high, generating so many high expectations and only to crash land. AMLO has promised many of the similar things, you know, many, many things. He wants to end corruption. He wants to end the drug war, restore security and poverty. Uh, and many of them, you know, many, um, I think Mexicans see them as, as lofty goals. How do you compare his relationship when it, uh, when it comes to, uh, or is it, the expectations for his relationship with the United States compared to his predecessor, Enrique Peña Nieto? Amla's been pretty clear that he's not going to be uh, what many critics in Mexico say. You know, they, they see Peña Nieto had turned into um, um, Trump's lackey. 
And AMLO is determined not to do that. He's determined to be a, a strong man, a strong leader, and really represent Mexicans, um, not uh, not be bullied by the by the United States. That's the rhetoric. You know, the reality is that the two countries are so closely interdependent. I mean, you take Texas. You know, uh, there's there's so much trade. The vast majority of trade goes to Texas. That it's hard to imagine, you know, what kind of wiggle room AMLO will have with, uh, with Trump, other than, than maybe becoming much more vocal, much more um, a staunch supporter of, of Mexican dignity, if you will. Mm. Now, now um, uh, forgive me for oh. interrupting, but I'm just thinking about how certain people who are in the business community are somewhat skeptical of AMLO. I mean, we know that, for instance, he recently canceled plans to build a new airport near Mexico City, and that upset investors. And I think a lot of people are skeptical about whether or not he's going to continue to keep uh, 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 keep an open mind about uh, uh, Pemex, for example, uh, uh, opening up its markets to uh, foreign investment. Uh, how do you see all of that sort of playing out? Well, I've certainly been talking to a lot of Texans, and, and you're right. I mean, there is a lot of nervousness. Uh, there are people who are a little bit jittery. There are people who are not uh, making long-term plans and people who are watching the stock market very closely and, and watching how the markets react in the first few days, the first 10 days, first few weeks of AMLO's uh, presidency. I, you know, I, talk, I was talking to a, a Mexican official last night who said, look, AMLO, I think, is aware of that. He is going to, in his inauguration speech, try to calm the markets, try to tell investors, hey, we're open for business. I'm very pragmatic, and, I, and we need foreign investment. I mean, for Mexico to get ahead, we need foreign investment. And the people who are coming in now for the inauguration, I mean, you know, there's a lot of receptions that are going on, but that is the theme, you know, what will he do? Will he be the AMLO campaigning? Or will he be the AMLO who's served in office, was mayor, and proved to be more pragmatic? That's going to be, I think, the story to watch in, in, in the next few a few days, if not the few, next few years. Dominating American headlines over the past several days has been what's been happening uh, at the Tijuana uh, border there, the San Ysidro uh, uh, port of entry in particular, where you had Customs and Border Patrol agents tear gassing migrants who tried to rush that border. Uh, and there had been talk that Mexico perhaps had been in discussions with the Trump administration trying to cooperate on perhaps some kind of amnesty holding plan. People applying for amnesty in the United States might be held in Mexico. Is, uh, of course, that has been challenged, and Mexico has said it's, it has not come up with any kind of agreement with the United States. But I wonder what, if anything, changes when it comes to that dynamic over immigration under AMLO. That will be the issue. I mean, and, and they will, they're very clear in saying that is the most pressing, immediate issue that's facing Lopez Obrador. Uh, and that's going to determine, I think, for, for a long time to come, the future of the U.S.-Mexico relationship. One of the first things that AMLO wants to do this Saturday is, I think, meet with some of the leaders from Central America, begin the dialogue, and then on, Saturday, on Sunday, uh, Secretary Pompeo is meeting with uh, Foreign Minister and Marcelo Ebrard, and they're trying to convince the United States, hey, let's come together with some kind of economic uh, plan for Central America. Because, David, you've got December coming up. You have the winter coming up. This is going to turn into an even bigger humanitarian crisis. And I think AMLO understands that this is 
the, the moment when the United States and Mexico have to come together. Mexico has to stop acting like it's a, it's a transit point for immigrants and start creating job opportunities. I mean, there's talk, there's talk of creating up to 100,000 jobs. But they're the first ones to say, yes, we were in discussions with the United States, but it was never a, a done deal. And now that this thing has come out as a, as a trial balloon, the pushback from the Mexican public is such that uh, they, they don't see Mexico becoming a third country, a, say, a remain country for Central Americans. A lot has been said in the American press, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, Alfredo, of, of President Trump's affinity for uh, autocrats. Uh, and a lot has been written about uh, AMLO describing him as uh, being something of a of a nationalist, albeit with a left of center perspective. Uh, how do you read AMLO and, and his and, and his politics? Is Lopez Obrador is he a uh, is w- would you consider him a strong man? And do you think that that will play into the relationship with Washington? I I think it's safe to say that he's a strong man. He's a populist leader. He's, he's left-leaning, but he's also very pragmatic. He understands that with Donald Trump, even if Trump has shown some kind of affinity for, for Lopez Obrador over the last few months, I think he realizes that the honeymoon will be very, very short. Uh, and, and that uh, in the end, it's really what it's about, more about uh, President Trump than it is about Mexico. I mean, as one analyst told me, Mexico will be Mexico and Trump will be Trump. And Mexico is in the situation that it doesn't want to be, which is in the situation where, you know, it's going to be bullied around. That's going to be, for Lopez Obrador, it's going to be constant, constantly trying to find the middle ground and questioning, is there even the political will on the part of the White House to try to meet Mexico in, in, at the you know, uh, middle of the road? Alfredo, you've covered this region for so long, and you're considered one of the one of the real uh, journalist scholars here. And I wonder if you're talking to a group of friends uh, at a at a party or something, and you're trying to express your own sense of of the direction uh, as uh, as Lopez Obrador is inaugurated. Do you feel optimistic? Do you think that there are opportunities here, or do you feel uh, somewhat uh, wary of what's ahead? I feel, I, you know, I feel wary. I mean, I've been here more than 20 years. I mean, I'm, I'm Mexican, but I'm also American. In, in a way, I belong to both countries. But I'm a little concerned about what the next six years will be. It's, you know, if, if President Trump gets reelected, I mean, you're looking at six years between these two men. And, and you, you're talking about two people who are very much a populist, nationalist, anti-establishment bent. And they can easily inflame the passions of, of their base. But here's the important thing. When it comes to a personality contest, which is what we see between Trump and Lopez Obrador, none of these two men they want to be questioned. They don't want to be confronted. It's their way or the highway. So it'll be interesting to see how Lopez Obrador you know, reacts to all this. Obviously, the United States has the, you know, the greater economy, the bigger economy. They, they can push Mexico around. And I think for border residents, it's time to, to you know, not just two-step, but really dance as fast as they can and dodge as much as they can because it's, it's, it's going to go back and forth and the border is going to be stuck right in the middle. Alfredo Corchado is a veteran correspondent, Mexico border correspondent for the Dallas Morning News, and he's also the author of Homelands, Four Friends, Two Countries, and the Fate of the Great Mexican-American Migration. Alfredo, great to talk with you again. Thank you so much, sir. 
Thank you, David. Joining us again in the studio is social media editor Wells Dunbar. A new guilty plea from Donald Trump's former fixer attorney Michael Cohen making waves with news watchers online today. Cohen, who previously pled guilty to campaign finance and bank fraud charges back Mm -hmm. in August, now says he lied to Congress about a Trump real estate project in Russia, striving to make it sound as if all connections were severed before the start of the 2016 presidential primary. But Cohen now says pursuit of that project stretched into the summer of that year. What all this may mean for Robert Mueller's probe into Russia's role in the presidential election remains to be seen. On our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Texas Standard, Paula Davis notes that she uh, notes that uh, Cohen rather said he lied to the Senate Intelligence Committee in order to be consistent with Trump's political messages and out of loyalty to the, to the president. And Jamie Gump notes that the president is jetting off to the G20 summit this weekend. He asks, are Trump and Putin still meeting? Good question. All, all signs point to yes is my understanding of the latest news there, David. We would love to hear your thoughts. What's making news in your part of Texas? Reach out to us right now at Texas Standard Wells Dunbar back in 35. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Oncology with a reminder that November is Lung Cancer Awareness Month. A preventative regimen including a healthy diet and exercise can help prevent lung cancer. More at TexasOncology.com. This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Texas should brace for more and worse hurricanes in the future, according to that climate report released by the government late last week. But when Hurricane Harvey left so much of Houston underwater, it highlighted another problem that's been getting worse for years, those floodplain maps. In the years since Harvey, flood control officials have promised a redo. In fact, they've been planning one for some time. But as Houston Public Media's Davis Land reports, new data on the geography of the area and the amount of rainfall forecasters should expect in the future suggests just how much those maps could change and how important it'll be to get them right. Much of the work has been ongoing for a while. At the beginning of this year, planes equipped with LIDAR flew over the entirety of Harris County. It's very high resolution, top of the line topographic data for our area. That's Matt Zeeve, Deputy Executive Director for the Flood Control District. It's a very detailed scan, so it'll take the rest of this year to process all that data and make it usable. So the first step is understanding that topographic data and then going out and we do actual real live with people surveying on all the bridges over all the the channels that we model. That's across all of Harris County. If you're noticing a trend here, yes, this stuff takes a while, years. It's a large area. Zeev says he doesn't expect the new maps to be done until 2023. It's an incredible amount of effort and folks don't like to hear how much work it is, but all it takes is Just follow an engineer who's working on one of these for a week and see what he or she is doing and the amount of time it takes and the amount of checking we have to do. And then you'll get a a feeling or an understanding for how long this process takes. So once they have all that data laid out and have a good picture of the ground, an accurate one, then they have to think about what's coming from the sky, the rain. Last September, NOAA released the latest volume of this rainfall study they call Atlas 14, which predicts the frequency of rainfall for a given area. As Matt Zeeve says, the results for Harris County were staggering. I remember when the, the first review draft was made available and we looked at it and I did say a bad word. The key takeaway from the latest Atlas 14 is that in the Houston area, a rainstorm that had a 1 in 100 chance of occurring in a given year now has a 1 in 25 chance of happening. That's significant. My qualitative assessment is that 
that is probably more than we've seen in other parts of the country. Mark Glodeman is director of the National Water Center Geointelligence Division. His team is responsible for putting out Atlas 14, and he too says the data could be a wake-up call. I certainly immediately felt that this was information that's going to get a lot of scrutiny, get a lot of attention, and not just be a, you know, a mundane government sort of a study that's released. Essentially, what Atlas 14 says is Houston can expect rain way more frequently. And that, combined with continued development in the area, that is, more concrete and less absorbent ground soil, flood control officials are expecting just about everything to change. Matt Zeev again. There are a lot of implications to that. And so we're working through how to communicate those implications to the public, to our local leaders, help people understand that these new maps may show them in the floodplain when they've never been mapped in an effective floodplain ever. It's crucial that these new maps are accurate. Floodplain maps were originally intended to set flood insurance premiums, but people have started to use them as a guide to whether or not they'll flood. Just before a storm, people could be making life or death decisions based on these maps. Flood control officials are also adding a second map that will show what they're calling local hazards, like overland flooding, as well as what happens if the Attics and Barker reservoirs have to do releases. These maps aren't expected to officially come out until 2023, but drafts of different areas will roll out in the meantime. In Houston, I'm Davis Land for the Texas Standard. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider, ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. Online retail sales broke another record on this year's Cyber Monday. You and lots of others in the U.S. parted with nearly $8 billion of your dollars on the traditional biggest day of the year for Internet purchases. Black Friday and the weekend that followed were also record breakers. And this year, more of us than ever made those purchases on our phones. Joining us now, tech expert Omar Gayaga with the lowdown on how we're spending all that holiday cash. Hi there, Omar. Hey, David. I read somewhere, and we were talking a bit about this before, the retailers didn't seem to be offering especially killer discounts for the post-Thanksgiving shopping weekend. Did you notice that? I did, and it seemed like they were either the same deals as you saw last year on some of the same items or you know, just not as great deals. But what they did do that was smart was just extend those sales beyond the crush of Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Now you've got like Cyber Week. Mm-hmm. Now you've got Black Friday, which is actually the Friday before Thanksgiving. Like You've got right. that whole week of Black Friday deals. So uh, I think just kind of slugging it out over a longer period of time got more people shopping online. And it seems like some of those holiday deals came out earlier this year too, right? I mean, uh, several days before Thanksgiving. I wonder if this whole idea of Black Friday and Cyber Monday is as outmoded as the very word cyber. I mean, is is this intense shopping period still a thing? I, it must be because, I mean, people are still watching and people are still saying that we're spending more than well ever before in this intense period. But it's something about the way it's pitched to the consumer. It is. And I mean, I mean, Amazon reported that it was its Black Friday and Cyber Monday were its two biggest shopping days ever in the entire ever. history of the company ever. Yes, and yet, you know, they then they reported, oh, by the way, our fourth quarter sales are not going to be what they we thought they were and their stock tanked so like you know you can't really tell right right. uh but a lot of retailers that are that have been pivoting for a while from from bricks and mortar to online Mm -hmm. are are seeing a big uptick like wayfair is one of those where you know you didn't hear about them much wayfair is the furniture place yeah yeah uh, uh, ships free and all that i think they had something like a 57 percent increase in sales this year just because they have 
really pushed their online. They're putting out all these coupon codes. They have really made a mark this year on online. So you have a few retailers like that. Uh, but overall, yeah, we're definitely shifting toward more shopping on our phones. I think there was something like a 30 or 40% increase in phone sales and shopping this year over last year. So it's shifting away from just, you know, sitting at a desk at, you know, work on Cyber mm-hmm. Monday mm-hmm. and more toward a longer period of people just kind of browsing their phones saying, oh, that's a deal. Oh, that's something that I was going to buy anyway. Oh, there's a toy. Sort of the impulse purchase and you spread out the period of time for that purchase. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at the things that were Amazon's top sellers, they're very familiar items, the same things that were popular last year, the the Echo Dot, the Instant Pot. I mean, they were the exact same things that we were buying last year. I'm not so sure I'm comfortable with that. I mean, because... Uh, I, <laughs> the Instant Pot? <laughs> well, no, well, the Instant Pot is kind of great, isn't it? But no, but but seriously, it's it seems like there are fewer... Uh, killer deals i guess you know it's it, i i loved what i i think i really enjoyed about the black friday cyber monday thing is that you would find unexpected deals but as you were saying i mean that uh, that that uh, instant pot the 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 echo dot was a huge thing you know mm-hmm. there it's it's this it seems like the same old same old and i guess i have to be honest i worry about what this is going to mean for next year yeah and i mean the, the one interesting indicator the national retail uh, federation uh, which sounds like a space thing. Uh, they, <laughs> yeah. they, uh, they're saying that the Black Friday Cyber Monday period was actually down something like five percent over last year, but the entire season is going to be up five percent. So, like you said, there people are shopping over a longer period of time. They're not jumping on Black Friday or Cyber Monday. They're looking for a deal, maybe you know a few days later or a few days before. And I think if you're you know a procrastinator like me, you go, oh, I miss Cyber Monday, but then Tuesday and Wednesday you get the exact same deal. So that's actually good for shopping overall. I think to have yeah. a longer period of time. Those those of us who put off until the last minute, maybe there's a saving grace in all of this. Omar Gayaga is our go-to tech guru. You can find Omar Gayaga at techminutetexas.com. Good to see you again, sir. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next week. Thank you, David. Happy shopping. Coming up on 29 Minutes Past the Hour, Texas Standard Time. There's a whole lot more of the standard just ahead. Don't you touch that dial. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group partnering with SAP to deliver business-by-design supply chain solutions for cost transparency and process integration in mid-market companies. More at softwareispromised.com. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. Texas lawmakers are raising concerns about the safety of migrant children detained in the Tornillo Tent City in West Texas. An Associated Press investigation this week revealed the Trump administration waived rigorous FBI fingerprint background checks for staff working at the shelter. In the wake of that finding, Republican Congressman Will Hurd released a statement calling the problems in Tornillo, quote, shameful. Democratic State Representative Mary Gonzalez represents the Texas House District where the temporary shelter is located. She says she's been worried about the lack of transparency at the site since it was first established in June. So we heard when it was initially established, it was only for 300 kids for 30 days. Now we're at over 2,000 kids indefinitely. And for me, what's really important is when you keep on changing the game, it's really difficult to maintain transparency and accountability. She and fellow state lawmakers plan to fight for more oversight of these kinds of facilities when the legislative session begins in January. First, we want to strengthen the already oversight we have of the state facilities at the first step. The second step is clarifying state law to say that even if you're on federal land, you're still mandated 
to be a state licensed facility. Because the Tornillo facility is on federal land, it's not subject to state inspections. But Gonzalez adds there are over 5,000 other migrant kids detained in state licensed facilities in Texas. When this issue initially arose, there were hundreds and thousands of people who were outraged and who were rallying and who were writing their congressmen and congresswomen to change the scenario. And I want the public to be re-engaged in this conversation because there are still thousands of kids who are separated from their families in our own state. The current contract for the Tornillo shelter runs through the end of December. A new study finds the percentage of Texas children without health insurance is on the rise after steadily declining for a decade. The Center for Children and Families at Georgetown University reports the uninsured rate for Texas kids climbed from 9.8 to 10.7 percent between 2016 and 2017. Texas now has the largest share of children without health coverage in the country. Joan Alker is one of the study's authors. She says there's also a growing number of undocumented parents foregoing care for their citizen children because of the fear of deportation. For these mixed-status families, there's likely a heightened fear of interacting with the government, and this may be deterring them from signing their eligible children up for government-sponsored health care. The nationwide uninsured rate also increased for the first time in a decade. The Texas General Land Office and the Federal Emergency Management Agency say a program housing nearly 1,600 families who lost homes in Hurricane Harvey has been extended for six months. The program provides trailers in southeast Texas for families still working to rebuild. It was originally set to expire in February, 18 months after the date of the disaster. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas Standard. 33 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. Great to have you with us on this Thursday. Last year, a city of nearly 70,000 people north of Austin became the first city in the whole state to do this. Go 100% with renewable energy. The Lone Star State's long been a leader in wind power, and Georgetown's decision meant that all of its electricity would come from either the wind or the sun, piped in by a handful of providers. But now the city wants to generate power locally which could change what their neighborhoods look like, too. Texas Public Radio's Paul Flav wanted to find out just how and why. Georgetown, Texas got a lot of attention when it went 100% renewable energy in 2017. $19 million in free publicity, says a city commission study from national interviews, mentions, and stories. There are cities in the U.S. that have already reached the goal of 100% renewable energy. Look what's happening in Georgetown, Texas. The town was also featured in Al Gore's An Inconvenient Sequel. Howdy! Howdy, Mr. Vice President. How are you, Mr. Mayor? Welcome to the greatest city on planet Earth. Oh, that's spoken like a good mayor. The city's doubling down on its green strategy. Last month, Bloomberg Philanthropies gave Georgetown a million dollars for its next innovation. This is our idea. What if we had a virtual power plant in the city of Georgetown, and what would that look like? Mayor Dale Ross says by renting residents' rooftops, installing solar, and backing it up with state-of-the-art battery technology, they can offset the quickly growing community's energy needs at a savings. The conservative Republican mayor says they've been buying energy from solar and wind farms hundreds of miles away and want to bring some generation back to Georgetown. Well, this is definitely new and shiny. There are not that many projects like this. There are others. Eric O'Shaughnessy is a market research analyst at the National Renewable Energy Lab. But every time that one of these comes out, it comes out in a unique way. He's identified more than 20 virtual power plant pilot projects across the country, from Maui to Chattanooga. All use rooftops. Some have battery backup and some don't. But across the board, they are demonstrating that this works. (laughs) At the very least, 
there's still a lot of open questions. Georgetown plans to deploy about 90 kilowatts or 15 rooftops worth of power, along with eight to nine battery backups. O'Shaughnessy says these decisions are no-brainers in Hawaii, where energy runs more than 30 cents a kilowatt hour. But in Texas, where it's under 12 cents an hour, it gets trickier. Jack Daly with the city manager's office says they're confident they can make it work. What's interesting now is, I mean, we are right at the cusp of this making financial sense, right, with battery and solar technology. So if we can make it work with today's technology, the pro forma, the financial should only get better. Behind this security fencing sits Georgetown's Westside Utility Service Center. Chris Foster, the manager of resource planning and integration, walks past rows of pole and pad-mounted transformers. Solar panels line the long south-facing structure's ribbed roof. There's, there's about 460 of these panels up here across the whole uh, section. And it supplies enough energy for not just this building, but about 17 houses up the line into the Sun City neighborhood. This array cut the cost of energy in this area nearly in half, he says. And future savings from their pilot will come from the resilience the batteries provide for maintenance and in emergency situations. He says the project can change how neighborhoods in this country are built. I am excited. Yeah, anytime you got a chance to change the world, you know, you're, you're going to do it. O'Shaughnessy says some communities are already making those changes. Uh, building codes are increasingly embracing solar, so you can design an entire neighborhood to ensure that enough homes are south-facing. Georgetown continues to be known for things like its annual poppy festival and its idyllic downtown square. Your options are we have 42 flavors powered by renewable energy. But Karen Zafka, who owns Ice Cream Shop and Toy Store All About Kids, says out-of-town customers increasingly know about the town's renewables push. But when we talk to them, almost everybody knows the green story of Georgetown too. Um, so it has impacted business for sure. It takes a lot of energy to power those hot water tanks and commercial freezers. And she says the city signing that 20-year deal with renewable companies at a fixed rate actually made this shop possible. Mm -hmm. No, I don't think we would have even looked at the idea. Georgetown won't know for more than a year how this project impacts the community or if they'll be able to expand the pilot past the first 15 homes. And whether this virtual power plant project changes neighborhoods forever, understanding that will take far longer. From Texas Public Radio in San Antonio, I'm Paul Flav for the Texas Standard. Here's an item that qualifies as breaking news here in Texas. The HEB grocery store chain based in San Antonio certainly has its fans, but even enthusiasm for HEB pales to enthusiasm for a certain Tejana singer. Yes, just in time for the holidays, HEB has sprung a press release announcing that a second edition of its most popular shopping bag ever, the Selena shopping bag, set for release on December 6th. Get in line, $2 per bag with a limit of two per person. The new design features photos of the pop star alongside the word siempre, always, and her signature. Support for Texas Standard comes from TCU, where horned frogs strive to be a force for the greater good. Like Dr. Kyle Walker, who uses data mapping and open source software to help organizations serve at-risk communities. TCU, lead on. You're listening to the Texas Standard, I'm Marika Flatt, travel editor with Texas Lifestyle Magazine, here with your weekend trip tip. 
New Braunfels has long been known as a summer getaway because of its spot on the Comal and Guadalupe rivers, and because it's home to a certain water park mecca. But the city's German heritage and holiday traditions have also grown New Braunfels into a winter destination. You can keep your insides warm with a trip along the Texas Hill Country Craft Beer Trail. It includes five breweries in New Braunfels. And you can also find two of the Hill Country's top rated wineries in New Braunfels. When it's too chilly for tubing, you can canoe, kayak, stand up paddleboard, and fish along the Guadalupe River. And there's also Canyon Lake for motorboating, sailing, and fishing. If you like to hike and explore, it's always a nice 70 degrees inside the Natural Bridge Caverns. And next door, you can enjoy a Texas safari at the Wildlife Ranch. Take a look at the gorge, cleared by a historic flood and revealing dinosaur prints and the history of a long ago sea. And if birding is your interest, New Braunfels is in the southern flyaway for migrating birds. The Texas Hill Country is also home to a network of dance halls and honky tonks with regular live music events where you can hear popular and up and coming artists of every musical genre. If you're planning a trip, here are a few New Braunfels events to add to your calendar. Chris Kendall Market is inspired by the Chris Kendall Market in Nuremberg, Germany. This open air Christmas market runs the weekend of November 30th through December 1st. Enjoy German food, drink, music, and shopping for unique ornaments, decor, and handcrafted artisan gifts. At the nearby Greentown Lighting, you can see Cowboy Kringle ride into Green Historic District December 1st to light the village for the holidays. The holiday celebration includes live music, festival food, and shopping at more than 30 shops, plus a show at the iconic Green Hall. At Wassel Fest, you can enjoy an evening stroll through the streets of downtown New Braunfels, sipping warm Wassel. The decorations, street entertainment, and twinkling lights make this December 6th event the perfect mood setter for the upcoming festivities. Christmas at the Cavern celebrates the holidays, combining the sights and sounds of the season with the natural beauty and wonder of the cave. Features include a Christmas campfire with spelunker claws, evening hayrides, and caroling in the caverns where the sound of Christmas resonates 180 feet below the surface, the first four weekends in December. That's your weekend trip tip. I'm Marika Flatt for the Texas Standard. Marika Flatt is travel editor with Texas Lifestyle Magazine. You can check out more of her weekend trip tips at texasstandard.org. You know, there are some traditions in Texas that no one dare violate. For example, there are people who will swear that Texas barbecue is best without sauce. And if you can't eat it without sauce, well, shoot, it's not good enough to call itself Texas barbecue. One of the places that folks point to is a place called Kreitz Market down in Lockhart, which itself is a kind of capital for Texas barbecue. But according to Daniel Vaughn, barbecue editor at Texas Monthly, that may not still be the case at Kreitz Market. They may have gone to the dark side. Is that true, Daniel? That's right. After over a century in business, Kreitz Market has added sauce to the menu. Wow. And they, they, uh, did, no, it, wait, wait, they wait. did it really quietly, too. Yeah, I bet they did. Especially given you, once you would, I mean, it used to be if you went to Kreitz Market and you, you ordered something and you asked for sauce, they give you the hairy eyeball. 
Well, I mean, that's the thing. Like, you know, you hear so much about Texas barbecue being no sauce, no sauce, no sauce. And I would constantly tell people, well, there's, there's one place in the state that doesn't have barbecue sauce, and that's Kreitz Market. And I can't even say that anymore. There is no barbecue joint in Texas that doesn't serve barbecue sauce. So what is what is this a sign of other than, uh, I don't know, uh, <laughs> impending doom? Uh, well, I, I think here at Kreitz Market it's a sign simply of the fact that barbecue fans are flocking to Texas and Lockhart from far-flung places. Uh, more and more often they're coming longer distances. And barbecue folks from outside of Texas just expect that barbecue is going to be served with sauce. Owner Keith Schmidt there said that it got to the point where he was kicking customers out because they were causing such a scene really? for not having sauce and wow. not having forks. Because they didn't have forks either. Like you would, you'd get your barbecue sliced up, weighed up, put onto butcher paper, and you'd be given a plastic knife. And you were, <laughs> right. that was the expectation. Sure, you're going to eat course. with your hands and you're going to eat with a knife, no forks. I mean, right. that was what was on their shirts, on their sign, on their cups, no forks, no sauce. And he said, he uh, Keith Schmidt said that he would have customers saying, what do you think, I'm some sort of barbarian? I have to eat with my hands? Where are the forks? I love this image of people getting kicked out of the barbecue place because uh, they cause such a stink. So yeah, they get, they were getting a little saucy. Yeah, ha ha. So so give the people what they want. Uh, they've eventually uh, decided to to go with it. And Keith Schmidt said too that you know his he, his grandmother had this sauce recipe. Oh, like he's got it handwritten and framed. I, I did question him. Like really, your grandma mm-hmm. had a sauce this recipe? This sounds way did, too convenient. Where did this come from? And no, he showed it to me handwritten, like the paper is properly aged um, and, it, and it's framed. It is a real sauce recipe from his grandma. You trust and it it's wasn't a good smoked one or something, right? I mean, <laughs> well, it's a good sauce recipe too because it, as an older sauce recipe, it doesn't rely on sugar in the way that most most uh, you know sauces yeah, that you're going right. to find in the grocery store and stuff rely on. It's it relies on spice and tomato and depth. Like it's it's got some good flavor to it. What about the consistency? Is it is it sort of thick or more sort of uh, I don't know it's medium medium yeah mm-hmm. i mean it's certainly not just running right out of the bottle but uh it's it's not your sweet baby ray's sludge oh thank goodness thank goodness so you've tried it i guess i have tried it yeah i sat down with Keith schmidt and i had a uh, brisket pile over top of butcher paper and i took a bottle of that sauce and just squirted it all over mm. um got my fork and my knife out I, I guess the thing is like if you're gonna put sauce all over that brisket it does make more sense i guess to eat it with a knife and a fork yeah i see that um but did it Did it, which, what tasted better to you as someone who is an expert in these things? Did you prefer the brisket without the sauce or with it? Be honest. I think I prefer the brisket without the sauce. And Hmm. that's just a lot of sort of memories and expectations of what Kreitz Market should taste like. But I mean, honestly, when I go to Kreitz Market, I'm all about sausage and pork chops. And there's (laughs) nothing that I'm going to put on that pork chop to make it any better than it already is. (laughs) I wonder if there's not something sort of larger about, you know, the sign of the times or something that a place as old as Kreitz Market, it's like 100 years old or something, at least 100 Uh, years old. No, no, no. There's no reason to get sentimental about this. The day that I, hold on, the day that I ate this sauce, the day that I went in to try it, on the special board was bacon burnt ends. Now, I think (laughs) 
that the fact that Christ's Market <laughs> is now cooking and serving bacon burnt ends, yeah. like one of the trendiest things in Texas barbecue right now, has a lot more to say about sort of their place in Texas barbecue, their willingness to sort of push the boundaries of traditional Texas barbecue than adding sauce and forks. Which reminds me, at some point, we're going to have to talk about trendiness and barbecue, uh, maybe next time. Uh, Daniel Vaught is the barbecue editor at Texas Monthly. You can check out what's smoking over at uh, Texas Monthly's barbecue channel online. We'll have a link to it at texasstandard.org. Daniel, great to talk with you again. May the fork be with you. for Texas Standard comes from Texas CASA, advocating for a safe and positive future for all Texas children in the child protection system. Volunteer information at becomeacasa.org. Every child has a chance. It's you. You got to tune to the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Most of us recall the family separation crisis at the border, one of the biggest stories of 2018. But how many of us heard about the angry tias and abuelas of the Rio Grande Valley, huh? Over the course of several weeks in the summer, 11 women sprung into action, dispensing donations, money, and aid to women and children on both sides of the border. Out of their own pockets and at the expense of their personal safety at times, They visited the bridges well into the nightfall, gathering information for migrants and launching a movement that continues to this day. Elisa Philippone is the only Tia based in Brownsville, Texas, but today she joins us on the Texas Standard. Ms. Philippone, uh, thank you so much for spending a few minutes with us on the Standard. Oh, thank you, please. When was the association created and and, uh, uh, how formal of an organization is this? We're not formal at all. We're just 11 women. The first four went to the Reynosa Bridge on June 3rd. And then they met on June 13. And by this time, I believe it was seven. Tell us a little bit more about that name, the Angry Tears and Abuelas. Uh, How were you dubbed that very memorable uh, title? Well, I was actually not present at that first meeting. But one of us, Jennifer, just said, we're just a bunch of Angry Tears. (laughs) <laughs> and that's what it was. Yeah, we, we were outraged over the separation of families. Yeah. That's what compelled us to stand up and speak up. Well, now, what you say that you were not at that first meeting. So what was it that inspired you to join the Angry Tias and Abuelas? The women that put together Angry Tias called for a protest in front of the federal courthouse here in Brownsville, uh-huh. where the trials of dozens of immigrants happen at once. I showed up to that. You know, I got an email and I showed up. It was only 15 of us. And I signed up to just do bridges visits because I live very close to the bridges. I said, yeah, sure, I'll do that. I can do that. What did you do when you went out to the bridges? I mean, to to describe what, what you encountered. So there was a line of people with visas and passports. And on the other side, that day, I saw five people. One was a woman with a baby in her arms and then another a uh, young woman, too, with a toddler. And th- there was a man also. They were unrelated for what I got. I had bought water in Matamoros, and I just handed it to them. At the B&M Bridge in Brownsville, there mm-hmm. isn't even a cover for the sun or the rain. At the Gateway Bridge, at least there is that. 
So my intention is to go see what is what the needs are and come back and put together resources and volunteers to go back. In the months since the television cameras left Brownsville, um, how have you continued with this organization or has the organization continued there? The things we do have remained the same. We provide money to feed breakfast and to feed dinner. But we also give transportation from the detention center to shelters here, in many cases to reunify mothers and children. That is out of our pockets. Forgive me for asking, but are you independently wealthy? How do you how are you how do you manage to do this? No, uh, you know, it's a tank of gas. I go to the bridges and I pack my own water from my tap. It's really not I I gave my my mittens away the other day because because I can get another pair. It's really not a big deal. So we came back and he said, hey, we need some money to buy mittens and scarves, people. <laughs> and we got money. We got donations and we bought the things. I went to a hardware store and I said, we bought bandanas because we couldn't afford scarves. And it's better to have at least something around your neck or maybe two bandanas than, you know, better than nothing. And so the, uh, the manager of this hardware store just gave me 50. Wow. He actually came running after me. I was already getting on the truck to leave, and and he comes running with 50 bandanas. What are you seeing now in Brownsville? How does the current situation compare to what you saw over the summer? Well, the numbers have grown, and the length of time that people have to camp on the on the bridges is longer. When I started in June, the wait was five to seven days, I would say, and now I've seen people who've waited more than 30 days there on the bridges. So how long are you going to continue doing this, Elisa? Uh, we don't know. I do it today. Elisa Filippone is with the Angry Tias and Abuelas of the Rio Grande Valley. She is one of 11, the only one in Brownsville, Texas. Elisa, thank you so much for sharing your stories with us on the Texas Standard. We most definitely do appreciate it. Thank you very much. And you were listening to the Texas Standard. Joining us once again in the studio, it's our social media editor, Wells Dunbar. So, Wells, uh, what are Texans talking about on this day before Friday? Day before Friday, yes, indeed. Well, here's an update to a story I mentioned earlier in the show. I was talking about uh, this new guilty plea from Michael Cohen, the president's mm-hmm. uh, right. former attorney and longtime fixer, uh, basically uh, admitting to lying to Congress about uh, potential Trump interests uh, in Russian real estate. Well, now a new development in the story from the president himself, Donald J. Trump. He tweets, based on the fact that the ships and sailors have not been returned to Ukraine from Russia, referring to the uh, Russian aggression on those Ukraine ships there. He says, I have decided it wouldn't be best for all parties concerned to cancel my previously scheduled meeting in Argentina with President Vladimir Putin. I look forward to a meaningful summit again as soon as this situation is resolved. So not using uh, canceling, not not using the Cohen news as a reason to cancel the visit, but rather uh, this uh, conflict with Russia uh, attacking these Ukrainian ships is a reason to cancel the meeting there in the G20 uh, summit this weekend. So that's off, but I know that he's also meeting with uh, the uh, Chinese president uh, there at the G20 and a lot of of trade talk. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. 
Well, here, okay, so let's move along to some news that everybody wants to talk about here. I'm talking, of course, about Knickers, the robust bovine from Australia that towers over mere cows. Have you heard about this cow, Knickers? You know, I think I saw it at the corner of my uh, social media eye. (laughs) This enormous, it it didn't look like a real cow to me. No, because there's the shots of him, and he's towering over these other cows. He's six feet, four inches. Uh uh, Six feet, four. And weighs about a ton and a half. So big, big cow. Apparently, he that his size uh, really did matter here, and saved him from the slaughterhouse uh, wow. because he was too big to process. So his owners in Australia have Good just night. been keeping knickers on the farm there. Uh, interesting sort of backstory here. News organizations were beefing. No pun intended. Uh-huh, yeah. Over the nomenclature here, I think the Washington Post headline was something like uh, "Meat Knickers, the cow, the giant cow who's neither giant nor a cow." The well, giant thing. He is giant. But the thing about cow is that he's actually a steer. And so there's a lot of oh, people going back and forth. Right. Lots of people tweeting us about that. Kirk Pittman saying uh, that you cannot use the term cow as an all-inclusive for bovines. Mm. You know, this got some folks thinking, uh, though. Interesting. You know, here in Texas, the biggest concern we have is can we smoke this and eat this? Quite often, yes. So someone, one of our uh, listeners d- decided we should rope in Daniel Vaughn, our barbecue expert. Interesting. Would the size make a difference in the taste? Well, Daniel Vaughn said, not really, but there would be some unusual flavors in the fat simply due to the age of the animal. Let's talk about it on the radio. So, hey, I think there's going to be your next barbecue segment right there. That just doesn't seem right, though, talking about a great big cow that's made his mark (laughs) on the world stage. Uh, What do you think, Texas? Tweet us at Texas Standard. We're out of time for the big broadcast. We're going to be back here tomorrow. We certainly do hope you can join us. On behalf of the entire Texas Standard crew, I'm David Brown, wishing you a terrific Thursday. Philanthropic support comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Woldridge, Adrian Killam, the George Huntington Family, and the Hatton W. Sumners Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.